This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On the latest episode of BCC, The Other Side. Comedian and BCC godmother Jen Kirkman joins us for a TV club discussion about Showtime's new four-part docuseries, UFO. Yeah, and it turns out we got there first. Take that, J.J. Abrams. To listen, go to patreon.com backslash Bigfoot Collectors Club. club welcome back to the podcast <laughs> where we talk to amazing guests about their personal paranormal history and share stories of high strangeness i'm your host michael mcmillan with me always is your other host bryce johnson and our super producer riley bray oh yeah someone is Bring ready those caramel to tones fuck yeah guys Summer, your summer, ear hole. Yeah, yeah. no, I don't want it. No, maybe no. I just want to cuddle. I just want to okay. cuddle okay. your ear hole. Okay. Cuddle, right. you know what? You know where cuddle, Jeez. cuddling leads, baby. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a hot, wet, hot alien summer two summer abduction. And you know what? I don't care mm-hmm. that Labor Day is coming gone. I don't care that we are now halfway through September because you know what? Summer ends. When we say it ends, okay? That's right. We got that. And then technically, I think mm-hmm. we have to like the 22nd anyway. But I'll tell you what, it ends today. Because if you're listening to this episode <laughs> on the day it drops, then tonight we are streaming our BCC live finale to Wet Hot Alien Summer 2 Summer Abduction at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. On Ludo, a virtual event space. Tickets are only five bucks to the show. And there are also limited tickets for a a little one-on-one chat with me, your pal Michael, after the show. 
Um, so you get can some get... of that good, good one-on-one time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A little FaceTime. A little backstage VIP hang with me, your pal, whatever you want to talk about. Um, you can get tickets for one or both of those things over at uh, live.ludo.gg slash BCC. The link is in our link tree on Instagram at Bigfoot Collectors Club and on our Twitter at Bigfoot Pod. And look, I just wanted to say we know that many of you guys have had issues with the site when purchasing tickets. We're sorry if you had any troubles. We've been working with Ludo and letting them know that there have been some issues. And hopefully, hopefully those bugs have been fixed by now. So if you haven't been able to get tickets, try the link in our link tree in our bio and uh, pick those up. Okay. So. And I will say, just to to piggyback on that, they have been very diligent on it. It seems like all of the issues have been fixed. And look, guys, we're on. This is this is a new frontier. Some yeah. cutting edge shit. All right. Ludo is a startup. They're awesome. We're doing this thing. Come to our show. And You'll enjoy it. Yeah. The platform that they've designed is really fucking cool, which is it's when awesome. They yeah. came to us and pitched us, uh, pitched us the idea of doing a show. We took a look at what they had to offer and it's really exciting. So sorry that it's been a little buggy for you guys. Um, for some of you guys, I should say, uh, but, um, Check it out. Come to the show because guess it's going to work. It's going to work. It's going to us on the high wire. It. <laughs> it's going to be great. We're going to have surprises, maybe a surprise guest. Not saying who, and not saying, but I. They have confirmed with me that they will be there. Um, oh, during great. the show, I'm not telling the guys. Uh, during the show, we will announce whether or not the BCC jet ski special will happen. In order <laughs> for this to happen, guys, we need to reach. 1,000 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts by tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. As of this recording, just a week away from that deadline, we are at 918 five-star reviews. (gasps) Ah! So it's like totally possible. This could happen. Only 82 reviews away from making this happen. If, if you, you, you listening right now, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts and you pull have not. Pull over your car. Yeah, pull, jump. <laughs> right now. Like, jump the bridge, land on the ferry, and then pull up the app. Get to some Wi-Fi. Yeah. Scroll down. Get Give us a five-star review. If you haven't done it, you're the person that we need to help us out. Head over there. Wow. Uh, and if you do, we might Let's read it. Let's make magic. Yeah, we might read your magic, like like this review that Bryce has. This is my mom's favorite podcast, says Pappy Rowe. Five stars. Her and I have both been listening since episode one. Tune in every week. I do. Pretty sure she's obsessed with Bryce. Ooh. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing, or nice. Canada's lake monster Ogopogo will come for you. Family. Aw, thank you, Pappy. That's Whoa. amazing. That's all you got to do. Just moms, leave a little five star review like that. Moms love Bryce. Just go give us yeah. five stars and write. <laughs> all you got to write is "Moms love Bryce." Okay, that's That'll your. Do it. That's do it. all you got to do. Moms love Bryce. Boom, that's your assignment for the week. So the video stream for the live show will only be available during the show itself. Don't pass up on the chance to join us tonight uh, for the Wet Hot Alien Summer Two Summer Abduction live stream finale. On Ludo.gg. Speaking of Was 2, all of our amazing merch is still available on WeAreCampfire.media. Head over there, yeah. smash that shop button, click the link in our bio, and check out all of our amazing offerings. And finally, 
You can always support the show by subscribing to BCC The Other Side, the parallel dimension to Bigfoot Collectors Club, where a $5 monthly pledge gets you three to five bonus episodes every month, plus other fun exclusive contact content and access to our entire catalog of, I think, around 158 episodes now. Wow. We've given you guys free content every week for close to four (laughs) fucking years now. So do yourself a favor by doing us a favor and supporting BCC for once in your life at patreon.com. Slash, get over there. Get over there. Quit screwing around. Patreon.com slash Bigfoot Collectors Club. Okay. We love you guys. Our guest this week is a psychotherapist from Nashville, Tennessee. She's not a psychotic therapist. She's a psychotherapist. Um, She's just launched a brand new podcast about dreams and tarot called Psyche Magic. Uh, I got to be a guest on the very first episode. Club Scouts of all timelines, please welcome our friend and fellow podcaster, Jordan Hale. Hello. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. That was such an adorable introduction. Jordan, uh, we're so happy to have you here. Uh, Why don't we talk, we want to get into your personal paranormal history, obviously, but why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do and about the podcast Psyche Magic? Sure. So this is such a uh, new venture for me. This has been a huge learning curve. Um, I wanted to start a podcast about dreams and the subconscious because mm. I feel like in my work as a therapist, some of the most like really interesting and salient conversations that I have with my clients are about their dream lives. And I feel like we don't end up talking about it very much just in society. And even within my field, um, there's a little bit of like, I don't know if you could call it a taboo, but I think that a lot of people, including therapists, just don't feel confident being able to talk about dreams. Um, There's like such a there's such a wave in our field right now towards like evidence-based psychotherapies, right? So you've heard about like cognitive behavioral therapy and all of these models that can be like proven. And yet dreams are foundational to our field. Like when Mm -hmm. you think about Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud, like they were looking at people's dream lives and taking them seriously. And I just think that we need to get back to that because there's juicy stuff there. Do you think that yeah, maybe some? Told, oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask <clears throat> some of the hesitancy there because it feels a little like woo-woo or like. I think it just feels a little too um, intangible, right? Because it is so mysterious. And that's why I call the podcast Psyche Magic, because I do think that magic can happen in our dreams. But again, people are just a little nervous to kind of skirt those topics, whereas I welcome them. I love talking about things that are mysteries. I love talking about things that we can't explain. I think that... Well, you're in the right place. Exactly. I think it's fascinating. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think, I think it's a really sort of uh, underappreciated field, this looking into people's dreams and their, and their subconscious thoughts. I think there is so much there to pluck from. And uh, I think it's really relevant and important to sort of um, not just who we are, but perhaps even larger implications like, you know, where we go and, uh, perhaps when we sleep, perhaps when we die, you know, I mean, I, I think there's so much there. Yep. Me too. I really, um, I think that 
a lot of the magic of dreams comes from the fact that this is there's really like ancient stuff that goes on in our dreams. Like I, I remember Michael and I were having a conversation about a dream that my husband Daniel had had where like there was a snake in our yard and it was attacking me and our dog. And Michael was like, dude, you could have had that dream like centuries ago, like as like a cave person. You know what I mean? Like it would be the same like symbols, the same setup. And so mm-hmm. sometimes our dreams are presenting material to us that can feel like really ancient and collective. And it can be really unifying, I think, too. Wow. It it is strange how primal they are. And, like, how, when you think about it, it's very rare that we dream with, like, I mean, sometimes it happens, but, like, I think John Tenney was talking about how, like, cell phones really don't show up in people's dreams that much. You know what I mean? Like, new tech. You know, like, I don't remember ever playing my PS5 in my dreams, but like, you know, I've been chased by a saber toothed tiger. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. it's weird how, how primal they are. I know. Well, and the reason that on the podcast, I like to incorporate, I mean, obviously we talk about dreams. We do like a dream interview each episode where I talk with someone kind of in depth about their dream themes and things that show up for them most often. But I also really like to integrate um, other symbolic modalities. So things like tarot, things like mythology, because the language of the unconscious is the language of symbol. And so when we look around our world and we see symbols that are meaningful to us, those symbols can often hold like several different meanings at once. And so that just creates all these different like rich layers of meaning and discovery. And so I think it's really cool to like hold all of these things um, together. Like what kind of give us an example of what type of symbols uh, can attract someone's attention in their in their normal day lives? Sure. So, okay, something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is this. um, Actually, when Michael was in town, I actually had him pick up a book about this. So um, I've been talking with several different clients about grief and loss. I've been on my own kind of grief journey. And something that a lot of my clients and I have talked about is seeing symbols out in the world that feel like messages from loved ones who have crossed over. Mm, Yeah. So like, for example, um, a lot of people cite seeing like certain kinds of birds and just having this really strong feeling that that bird is like carrying a message uh, from their loved one. And so um, I actually, I have experience with this. Like, I lost my grandmother kind of early on in the pandemic. And she was the first person that I had ever lost who I was really, really close to. And I started seeing hummingbirds like everywhere. Like Hmm. I never saw hummingbirds. They were never around at my house. Like I, I definitely never noticed them, never saw them. And all of a sudden they were just showing up all the time. And so once I started paying attention to that symbol and acknowledging it and even being like, wow, like, thank you, grandma. Like, thanks for sending me that. I, they're everywhere more and more and more and more. And so that's the thing is that if a symbol holds any kind of synchronicity or meaning, sometimes if we start paying attention to it and talking about it, it can get 
stronger and stronger and create this really like significant experience. I, wow. Yeah. I, mean, I, I feel so, like, so, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. no, I was just going to say, I feel like we're segueing <laughs> organically into the personal paranormal history here, <laughs> Yes, but because, totally. uh, I just, I had a conversation the other day, speaking of synchronicity with a friend mm-hmm. who, because of the podcast was like, I feel like I can talk to you about, about this. And I was like, sure. Nice. And she's been, she's, she lost a close friend recently and has been experiencing what she's felt are maybe signs or these synchronicities. Mm -hmm. And my take on it is, look, that very well may be direct messages from that person. Who's to say, Mm -hmm. and who's to say it's not. Um, But even if it's not, even if it is a coincidence, there's still you can still find meaning in that coincidence. And I don't think exactly. it has to be literal um, for you to have an emotional response and find meaning in that. If you're OK with looking at the world through a symbolic um, viewmaster and not feeling embarrassed or ashamed to do that because we're we're taught to take everything you know, literally and on face value. Yes. And I, I think it's okay to sometimes look, obviously there's a danger going off the deep end with magical thinking, but I think it's okay to look at a plant and go, okay, what does this plant literally? And then what does this plant mm-hmm. mean to me symbolically? You know? Yep. Yep. And that's the way that I, I sort of tell clients to look at their dream symbols. Like, okay, what are the layers of meaning here? So does, you know, let's say that somebody has, um, you know, like a wolf show up in their dream, for example. Um, I would ask them to associate about kind of what their experience and their kind of gut reaction about wolves would be. But then it's also interesting to look at, okay, so historically, like what have wolves represented just in terms of like civilizations and culture? And so like peeling back like the layers of meaning like that, like an onion. Well, and unlike unlike words that are very specific to their meaning, I think when you get into the world of symbology, uh, meanings are endless. I mean, a a wolf can mean so many things to so many different people. So it really sort of transcends just uh, definition or, or verbiage, you know? Yes. It's kind of the antidote to that. Yeah. To that, uh, like realism like hyper realism and even in some cases fundamentalism that can be so problematic Mm, mm. (laughs) so how did you get into tarot i mean i I, it's fun i think it's really interesting that you are a therapist but you're also into i i'm going to assume based on the name of your podcast some (laughs) of the more magical stuff that's available out. yes yes okay So tarot for me, um, I bought a deck several years ago and I never did much with it. I just kind of saw one in a store and was like, oh, this is interesting. Let's like play around with this. Um, I didn't get into tarot in a big way until basically the pandemic. Like once everything shut down and I was just stuck in my house, I was waking up in the morning and I was trying to have a ritual in the morning that felt supportive and nurturing. So I would get up and I would do like a little meditation. After you looked at Instagram, right? I mean, of course, that's that's prerequisite. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm just glued to my phone first thing. Um, But I throw it across the room and then I go sit down and do my meditation. And I would just pull a card every day, like just one card. And 
do that exact process that we were just talking about. So peel back the layers of symbolism on that one card. So the first thing I would do is pull it and I would just look at it and be like, well, I know nothing about this card. What's coming up for me? What am I noticing? What seems meaningful? And so I would have that be one layer. And then I would do a little bit of research, look up kind of the classical meanings and symbols of the card and see if that adds any additional meaning. And what I found was that this became just a very grounding and helpful ritual because no matter what, like, fresh hell awaited me in the <laughs> days of the pandemic, right? Yeah. It was horrible. I could say, you know what? I sat down this morning and I had this really kind of just nice, meaningful exchange with my day. And I checked in with myself in this way that felt just really, really rich and really helpful. So I that was kind that. of, yeah, that was, that was kind of what got me into it. That's and is awesome. it a classic? Is it a standard rider weight? That's uh, the one I deck? have. Yep. Yeah. I'm a big fan. I think that Pamela Coleman Smith, who did all the illustrations, is kind of a genius. I think that they're just fantastic. And everything I've read about tarot says that uh, you can basically encapsulate like the entire human experience by incredible. going through the entire uh, fool's journey of the deck, which I think is just so beautiful. Wow. What a what a what a what a solid sort of morning routine to to just get in touch with, not only yourself but the universe around you. I, I I'm sure yeah. all of our listeners can relate. My morning uh, my morning routine needs a few adjustments, so oh, I might I might I might pick up on that. I really like that. Yeah, I'm definitely I'm definitely a big fan, and there's just something to be said for just making a little bit of space for yourself yeah. like that every day. Yeah, even if it's just like five minutes. So let's go back a little bit. Is that what therapists like to say, right? Let's go back to your childhood. <laughs> let's go back. Let's talk about mommy and dad. Yeah, let's rewind a little bit. Um, growing up, were you in, was any of this part of your world? Were you aware of ghosts? Have you ever had a strange encounter that you couldn't explain? Like what? Because you're from Texas, correct? Yep. So, From Texas, grew up in the Bible Belt. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I okay. So I grew up in a um, fundamentalist Christian home and church. And um, however, okay, because because when I set that up, you would think that oh, that means that anything paranormal, anything you know, otherworldly is bad, but not necessarily in my family. My parents were actually really interested in the paranormal. Oh, cool. Um, mm. my, yeah, my parents both had lots of ghost stories. Um, they really like let us explore those types of interests. So as a kid, I was super into like crystals. I collected crystals and gemstones. Um, I Anytime that there was any sort of media or movie that was about the paranormal, I was completely enraptured. Like I found the other day, um, there was this like obscure Disney movie called Escape from Witch Mountain. Oh yeah. The yes! original wow. the original. Classic. Oh my god. Yes, the original. Not the um, one with the rock, but uh which not, is not Dwayne the Rock Johnson. But no. <laughs> yeah, that movie was great about aliens, oh. alien kids that had telekinetic powers and it's exactly it's they were spooky. psychic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I I was transfixed. Like any movie that had a kid with any kind of psychic power, like I was just like glued to the screen. I was really, <laughs> really interested. Um, and so I definitely felt like 
even though I was raised in this religion that eventually later I came to found, I came, came to be um, somewhat traumatic for me, at least I had the capability to be able to explore a little bit within that. Um, I was not smacked down for being interested in the paranormal. Um, so I definitely went through my phase of kind of deconstructing that religion, moving away from that religion, um, and just moving more into this realm of just spirituality in general, like enjoying being spiritual, enjoying kind of tapping into those aspects of life, but then like not needing to make it about any kind of religious framework. Um, I haven't had any really like strong paranormal experiences until very recently, actually. (laughs) Are you able to share? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So yes, I can share to an extent. So these are a couple of experiences that happened while I was in, um, therapy sessions. So of course I won't share any, you know, information about the clients, anything identifying about them. But I will share what happened to me. So (laughs) this was around my birthday, which was in March of this year. It was my 33rd birthday. And it felt like a big birthday. Jesus year. Shifting. That's a big number. Speaking of symbology, that's a very. Jesus year. I know. Yes. In, In astrology, it's a big year where you kind of come to the culmination of your Saturn return, which was when you were 29 and everything hit the shit hit the fan. Um, when you're 33, you're kind of, uh, taking stock of like those lessons that 33 you degrees of masonry that's the highest uh, yeah 33 vertebrae yeah. in your back it's a, it's a, it's really a number it's of a a initiation yeah it's a whole yeah. thing yeah. yeah it's a whole thing okay so turn 33 and um i had a couple of experiences back to back so i would be in a session just doing my thing being a therapist you know zoned in and um one of my clients would be talking about a loved one who had passed away And what would happen, it happened the same way both times. So I'd be just listening and all of a sudden their voice would start to get further away, like kind of how they show it in movies where it's like, it starts to sound like they're like in a well. And Mm. so their voice would get further away, like audibly. And then I would have this kind of energetic experience where it felt like there was kind of like an energy vortex or tunnel expanding between me and the client. So it felt like that space was getting bigger. Yeah. And it felt like there was this really strong, just kind of push of energy between me and them. And then I would feel this just strong kind of like fluttering of energy on my left side, like right above my left temple, like right near my head. It would feel I'm doing this motion with my hand right now where I'm like (laughs) waving my hand, like right next to my eye, like as if like some, someone or something was just right there. And the feeling, the feeling was like having like a weighted blanket of love, like just like, like just like weighing down like over me. And so the first time this happened, I kind of freaked out. I was trying to stay with my client and trying to just listen to them. And I had no idea what was happening, but I knew that it was important. I knew that it was significant. So that day I literally, I had to cancel my next session. Like I was so freaked out. I had to go home. I had to like put my feet on the ground and just like sit in the yard, 
like I just felt so like lightheaded. My energy just felt like so like depleted. Are you sure you didn't just need a banana nut muffin? Oh my god! Sometimes. Seriously, I know. <laughs> It was wild. Michael, now here's no, the thing. Michael, come on. Well, here's the thing. I would, I mean, honestly, if it had just been that one day, I might have, I might have landed on like that type of explanation, you know, mm-hmm. but instead what happened was I went to work the next day, like a good little therapist. And I sat down in my chair and I'm working with a different client. This client starts talking about a loved one who passed away. The exact same thing happened like the exact same progression of like sensations everything that i felt the energy vortex the feeling on my left side exactly the same and this time the client that i was sitting with was like i kind of feel like that person is here now and i was like me too (laughs) wow like i'm glad you said it because yes um and so ever since then i've been kind of on this journey of learning more and trying to understand more about um mediumship and what it is and how it works and so it's definitely just opened a new door for me that's been really fascinating to explore now why do you think this is yeah so wild why why do you think this is happening now or or have you started to go oh i think i i think i've always done this i just didn't know that's what this was i have no idea i really don't think i really don't think i've always done this <laughs> like, uh-huh. i would love to be able to say like oh yeah i was born i was born to that no i i i was not like something something opened like something unlocked something revealed itself to me like very strategically in those like back-to-back moments mm-hmm. um and so i don't know i don't know how to explain it i don't know what it is all i know is that i welcome it like i'm 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 honored and the fact that i just recently lost someone means that it's the first time i've ever been like experimenting with that type of communication like the symbolic communication that we talked about and so there might be something else about that too like now that i have this kind of guide in the spirit world right. if you will sure um, sure that could also be kind of like part of what's unlocking this um this journey but you guys the more i learn about this stuff the more that i come to understand i mean y'all have had mediums on the show like i'm starting to learn and understand that these experiences are not as um, crazy and outlandish as we think that more of us might be open to these kinds of things than we realize. Like, it's not necessarily that I'm so special. It's that I somehow spent the whole pandemic, like cultivating this awareness that allowed me to tap in to this thing. Like I was just unknowingly like preparing for this. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, <laughs> I think a lot of people are more open to these types of phenomenon than they, than they realize. Uh, And, you know, and I, I do think these types of things can happen spontaneously too. You know, you don't Mm -hmm. have to be born with it. It could happen early life, midlife, even late life. It's such a, it's such a strange, strange and interesting phenomenon. You know, if you're interested in, in mediumship, there's a great book by, 
Um, Leslie Keen is her name. It's called Surviving Death. Uh, she's a New York Times uh, writing investigative journalist. She broke. She helped break that UFO story in December 17th. But she wrote a book. Uh, she just wanted to sort of delve into some of these mysteries like mediums and, and you know, psychic phenomena, ESP and 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 sort of what she discovered and had to come to real and she came from a very skeptical point of view but yeah but man she really butted right up against like there being something phenomenal about Mm -hmm. this mediumship and that it's real and and Mm -hmm. you know it's personal and um anyway i highly recommend that yep Yep. I've experienced evidential mediumship, like someone sitting with me and giving me these pieces of information that are so specific and that no one could ever know. And it, it's a profoundly healing experience. Like, wow. I, I can't, as a therapist, I can't think of anything that c- could be more healing than that. You know what I mean? Like I could sit with someone and try to process their grief for years in therapy, or they could sit with someone as a medium and get these pieces of information and get confirmation that their loved one is okay. And is looking out for them. I mean, that's the most healing thing. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I, I was just thinking too, like you're, you know, sitting in a session with the therapist, if you're in the room with them, at least, and obviously like mediumship can, um, happen, uh, um, sorry, I'm getting a call. Sorry. Um, mediumship can happen, you know, over the phone or over zoom anyway. Yes. But, um, but it is sort of like, it's an intimate, you know, therapy is an intimate emotional experience. And in a lot of ways, like it replicates, what happens when you go and sit down with the medium, which is like, I've come here for answers. <laughs> I'm usually in a high heightened emotional state. Yes. You know what I mean? So there is something I'm not saying therapy. You have to, is, well, you have to be able to hold space for people. Right. Right. And I'm wondering if part of what triggered it is like, you were finally sitting down face to face one-on-one you know, practicing your therapy. And then this is like, oh, also this other thing might be able to use that conduit and that energy to bubble up and activate itself. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows how all that stuff works? That's, that's crazy. I mean, crazy, not that such a, not the right word, but that's (laughs) amazing is a better word. I know it's been a, it's been a wild ride y'all. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> you know, so speaking so this is a good so segue much. for this is a good segue for a question I had in sort of speaking about, you know, getting in touch with loved ones after life and in and in dreams. So I, I one of the books mm-hmm. I read not too long ago was Lucid Dreaming by by Robert Wagner and Oh, it's so good. It's a, such a great book because I mean, man, do they he it just explores so many out there topics about about dreaming, but one thing I highlighted was so a guy named Tenzin Wangyal, he is a uh, he's a Buddhist uh, meditationer and and uh, to monk, and and he had this idea that the deep practice of lucid dreaming or yoga of dreams could assist one in the intermediate bardo state after physical death, assuming one had developed sufficient awareness, understanding, and stability of mind through lucid dreaming and dream yoga one might be able to comprehend the illusory nature of after-death visions and thus avoid another incarnation. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on this. Like, do you think like 
like the dream world is similar to like maybe the experience of, of what it's like after we die? I mean, do you think there are any similarities there perhaps? Uh, it's uh, like, what an incredible, but I know, cause I've, I actually have heard lucid dreaming referred to as dream yoga in certain cultures. And mm. my understanding is that part of that practice of like cultivating that level of awareness is actually preparing the soul for death and transformation. And right. what I will say is that I think that part of what we can access both in dreaming life, but also in these kind of episodes where maybe we're between worlds, maybe a loved one shows up. Um, I think that part of what we can experience is just being able to let go of fear mm. because for so many people who come into my office, um, death and dying, it, like in terms of, you know, their list of things that they're the most afraid of is way up there. Mm -hmm. Um, no matter what your background is, right. So whether or not you come from kind of that fundamentalist place, like I did, where certain people are going to heaven and certain people are going to hell. Um, even if you didn't have that level of fear, just a genuine kind of nebulous fear of what happens can be so just debilitating. And so if we're getting in touch with some of these, um, you know, phenomena, I think that dispelling the fear is such a huge kind of healing byproduct that from what I've learned about mediumship, a lot of the reason that these loved ones are showing up and their messages are coming through are to help us try to let go of that fear. Mm. Right. Right. I mean, we hear it all the time. There's nothing to be afraid of, you mm -hmm. know, and, uh, yeah. it, it's just so just fascinating. A transition. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I'm mm -hmm. fascinated with the idea that, you know, even the even the uh, Egyptians sort of prepared for these afterlife trials, and they and and they would sort of prepare themselves on how to navigate the the underworld, as they called it. But mm -hmm. but it's sort of like they were like practicing being lucid uh, yeah. only in the afterlife. You know yeah. what I mean? So that they could avoid coming back, and that they could stay. Uh, you know, aware and in the moment of of all that was taking place after their death. You know. Yeah, I got to look more into the Tibetan Book of the Dead and getting into mm -hmm. the Bardo and all that stuff because, you know, Philip K. Dick writes a lot about that stuff. Um, that comes up in Ubik um, a lot. And this idea of like, there are certain, you know, we always talk about like, go to the light, go to the light when you die. But yeah. there are like, on the other side, I guess, in the there's Tibetan some Book of the Dead, yeah. There, yeah, there's like multiple <laughs> lights you can go towards. And one right, of them, right. one of them that really pulls at people is like the reincarnation tunnel. Like, uh -huh. it's like, come on back down, come on back down. And you're supposed to get to the point. And I think I think one of the big and I could be wrong about this, but I've always got this impression that one of the big things about having a magic practice and this kind of stuff is to learn and get more information like Bryce, you're saying about what's on the other side mm -hmm. so that when you are making that transition, you are at a more heightened educated state and lucid state to go, okay, that's the reincarnation tunnel. I mm -hmm. don't want to do that. The red light, <laughs> not going that, there. red right, light's right. not good either. And that one's calling to me too. You're, you you kind of like need to stick around and find like, 
like the golden light or something else. And you're supposed to head towards that. Cause that sort of yeah. like, this will graduate you to like the next afterlife, you know, awesome stage of, of, uh, conscious existence. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough about it, but this all that I have heard that Bryce, you know? Well, I told, I totally get what you're saying and sort of to compare it to the, 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 the lucid dreaming thing. It's like for beginners, when they, when they get their first lucid dream, they get so excited or agitated yes. that they immediately snap out of it, you know, uh, <gasps> yes. much to their, much to their not liking. And so it takes practice to sort of be able to stay into it and to, you know, calm your nerves and to, and to control your emotions so that you can stay in that dream world for for as long as you can, you know? Well, and this is the same thing with mediumship is that you have to be able to cultivate this calm, receptive state. And so when you're doing a mediumship session and you start to make contact and you start to get a couple of pieces of information, if you get too excited and try to grab onto it too tightly, it'll go away. Mm -hmm. Right. And so maybe we are accessing these things spontaneously through sleep because we are automatically in that calm, receptive state for once, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. Makes sense. Well, this is fascinating. I think we could continue (laughs) to talk about this for hours. Uh, Unfortunately, we have to wish you good luck on your journey and move on to the next stage of the show. Uh, which is a game that we like to play with all of our guests. I'm going to go down a list of phenomena. Uh, rapid fire style. If you're open to it, you're going to say, believe it. If you're not open to it, you're going to say bullshit. There's no in between. <laughs> all right. Okay, if you're open to it, believe it. And then if not, just say bullshit. Okay. Yes. And we can circle back. You know what I mean? When we're done, when we've gone through the list, if there are things you're like, I really want to revisit this and explain. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it's an, it's a, it's a binary torture exercise that I've, Yay! That it's, a, we it's, have a, it's a cryptological <laughs> Rorschach is what it is. <laughs> All right. So here we I'm go. Ready, let's do this it. is a game that we call bullshit or believe it. Jordan Hale on your mark, get set ghosts. Oh, believe it. UFOs. Believe it. Bigfoot. Believe it. ESP. Believe it. Shadow people. Believe it. Unicorns. <laughs> Ugh, wanna believe it, but I'm gonna go bullshit. Alien abductions. Believe it. Yeti. Mm, bullshit. Mothman. Hmm. Bullshit. Out of body experiences. Believe it. Tarot cards. <laughs> Believe it. Demonically possessed dolls. Bullshit. The healing power of crystals. Believe it. An alien spacecraft crashed at Roswell. Believe it. Loch Ness Monster. Bullshit. Atlantis. Bullshit. Haunted houses. Believe it. Skunk ape. Don't know what that is. Oh, you just unlocked a secret game within the game. Bryce, get ready. (laughs) Jersey devil. Bullshit. The biblical devil. Bullshit. Speaking to the dead. Believe it. 
Mermaids. <laughs> Bullshit. The government is hiding the truth about Sasquatch. <laughs> um, Bullshit. Past lives. Believe it. Life on other planets. Believe it. Life after death. Believe it. Well done, Jordan Hill. A heavily believe it trip down bullshit or believe it list. Yeah, I believe a lot of stuff, apparently. Shadow people, you were like, "Eh, oh, yeah, because, okay, well, because so much of the work that I've done is around like dispelling fear of the spirit world and trying to frame some of these experiences in a more neutral stance versus automatically assuming that things are, you know, evil or bad or dark. Um, and so when people talk about shadow people, I, I often hear it presented in like a very negative context. And I wonder if shadow people could be just something kind of residual, something neutral that we're picking up on instead of automatically something creepy, scary, bad. Right, right. Nice. Well, actually, Adela Levine, uh, our friend, medium, intuitive, oh, something her. similar. She says she thinks that the shadow people, generally speaking, are actually like helpful spirits or ancestors that kind of a situation that are looking in and there to to help us but nice you know i look a creepy shadow with a fedora in your bedroom at night i get why people are freaked out i get it too honestly um i i really understand and i do think that you know a lot of the stories that i was presented with as a kid about ghosts were framed in creepy scary bad context and I look back on them now and I'm like, that wasn't necessarily bad. Like maybe that person was just saying what's up. Right. Right. Good point. Okay. So you unlocked a hidden game within the game. Uh, I'm just going to give you an advantage here, Bryce, and tell oh. Jordan to like, just open a new window on your browser. Just have that ready. Okay. New window. Um, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So you didn't know what Skunk Ape was. Mm-mm. So Bryce is going to have 60 seconds to tell you what Skunk Ape is and make you believe in it. This is a game within a game we call 60 Seconds to Sell Skunk Ape. I'm pulling up the timer. Sweet. Okay. Stopwatch is set. On your mark. Get set, Bryce. Sell Skunk Ape. Bring, bring. Hi, is Jordan Hale there? Um, This is she. Hi, Jordan. This is Bryce Johnson from the Bigfoot Collectors Club. How are you today? Well, hello. I'm doing great. How are you? Well, I'm fantastic. Look, I don't want to waste a lot of your time. I just wanted to expand your belief system and really open up a world of magic for you. And uh, do you have time to talk? Does that make sense? I'm ready. Let's go. Great. Great. Well, look, I'd love to get you to go ahead and vouch for and believe in skunk ape and if you believe in bigfoot which you already do it's just it's just florida's bigfoot that's all no more no less and a lot of people get confused by the name and uh skunk ape but it's nothing more than just florida's bigfoot so can i write you down here as a believer i've got you on my list uh you know what i don't i I don't know about that bryce i'm not so sure i'm not a big i'm not a big fan of florida you know what i'm not a big fan of florida right now why don't i put you on my call bryce this conference this phone call has gotten disconnected (laughs) i gotta ask jordan did you buy skunk ape you said florida which was it just turned me off man it just really shut me down damn i just just couldn't do it should have just went southeastern you should have 
Should have showed her the picture. All right, we're going to take a break. I was going to say, I'm Googling it now. <laughs> Google my act of skunk with ape. The script, but it yeah. just I know. They, <laughs> they tell you. Stick with the script, Bryce. All right, while Jordan is Googling my act of skunk ape, we're going to take oh a break. God. And when we come back, it's time for this week's UFO story of high strangeness. Okay, we're back with Jordan Hale, host of the new podcast, Psyche Magic. Jordan, did you take a look at Mayaka Skunk Ape I while found, we were away? I found the skunk ape, yes. It's Damn. very scary looking. Yeah, what do you think? Fake fake news or real chews? Because he's got big teeth, you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. I feel I had like to pull I'm, a not really, I'm not, I had to pull a I'm not feeling this. My intuition is just not vibing yeah, with yeah. this situation. Sorry, Bryce. Sorry, Bryce. You did your best. Wow. Swinging yeah. and missing. Yeah. Well, guess what? We don't even need to talk about Skunk Ape because it's still wet, hot, alien summer two, summer abduction. And old Uncle Michael's got one more uh, story of high strangeness for you that I think you're all going to enjoy um, this is a topic that i've wanted to get to for a while it's a huge topic we really could have devoted a full fucking deep dive to this to this and maybe we will in the future but for tonight we're just going to kind of hit the highlights and the cliffs notes um let's get started riley why don't you cue up a little musical magic for us mm-hmm. january 2nd 1945 The New York Times carried a story by Bob Wilson, a reporter who had just interviewed the 415th Night Fighter Squadron about a strange phenomenon they had repeatedly witnessed in the skies over Germany and France during the December of 1944. It read, Balls of fire stalk U.S. fighters in night assaults over Germany. American Night Fighter Base, France, January 1st. The Germans have thrown something new into the night skies over Germany. The weird, mysterious Foo Fighters. Balls of fire that race alongside the wings of American bow fighters flying intruder missions over the Reich. American pilots have been encountering the eerie Foo Fighter for more than a month in their night flights. No one knows exactly what the sky weapon is. The balls of fire appear suddenly and accompany the planes for miles. They appear radio-controlled from the ground and keep up with our own planes flying 3,000 miles an hour, an official intelligence report reveals. The piece goes on to explain three different types of Foo Fighters pilots had witnessed. The first being I, I think Red you Bo- added an extra an extra zero in that, right? Three. It, it's got to be 300, It's going right? 3,000 miles an hour, okay? It's fucking fast. <laughs> Listen, that, this Bob Wilson doesn't know what he's talking about. It probably is 300 miles per hour. Uh, probably a typo there. Sorry, everybody. Uh, That's okay. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, sorry. I had a little bit too much to drink on my fly back from Germany. Whee! It was, well, I was going much faster than I was. All right, so the piece goes on to explain three different types of Foo Fighters pilots had witnessed. The first being red balls of fire that would appear off of their wingtips. The second, a vertical row of three balls of fire that would fly in front of them. And then the third, a group of 15 lights appearing in the distance, flickering on and off like a Christmas tree. What were these mysterious orbs of light that chased after and toyed with allied aircraft during the waning days of World War II? Were they, in fact, some type of radio-controlled Nazi weapon, as the article suggested? Encounters with these mysterious balls of light weren't limited to the European theater of war. 
They were seen in the Pacific as well. And if they were weapons, why, when fired upon, would they never fire back? Club mm. scouts of all timelines, as we begin to wrap up Wet Hot Alien Summer 2 Summer Abduction, I wish we could provide some answers to these quandaries. But the mystery is just alive today as it was back then, even perhaps more relevant today with all the headlines we've read this year involving the Pentagon and Navy declassifying a treasure trove of UFOs, now called UAPs, interacting with pilots. Tonight, you will just have to settle for more questions as we take a look at Foo Fighters. Even before 1944, the year the term Foo Fighter entered the lexicon, and a full 50 years before a Seattle grunge band was formed by former Nirvana drummer Dave Grohl, pilots had been seeing strange, unidentified craft during World War II. One of the earliest encounters involved a pilot named Charles R. Bastion of the U.S. 8th Air Force. As he flew over the Belgian Netherlands area, he described seeing two fog lights flying at high rates of speed that could change direction rapidly. A casual glance at a list of encounters in the index of Keith Chester's book, Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II, that was gifted to be by my sister this summer, thanks sis, is enough to suggest that UFO sightings were anything but uncommon during the war years. Large disks above the Timor Sea, mysterious searchlights beaming down on Kentucky, shining copper objects over Holland, ghost rockets and silver disks over Germany, neon lights above Italy, the list literally goes on and on. Hell, the infamous Battle of L.A. even took place in 1942 when a mysterious disc-like object was fired upon over Los Angeles to no effect, causing a brief but turbulent panic on the American home front shortly after our entrance into World War II. During the lead-up to the war, the 1930s also saw a massive amount of UFO incidents, some involving some leftover flying airships that made waves across the press during the turn of the century. Here is a particularly bizarre account from Strange Company that ought to make your head spin. Just imagine if you were the pilot who saw this. This happened during 1942 in the South Pacific near Tasmania and was witnessed by Royal Australian Air Force officer one Major Brennan and his crew during a flight in an area where local fishermen had been reporting strange lights. He stated, At 5.50 p.m. on a lovely Sunday evening, we were flying some miles off the coast of the Tasmanian Peninsula when all of a sudden, there came out of a cloud bank a singular airfoil of glistening bronze color. I'd say it was about 150 feet long and around 50 feet in diameter. It had sort of a beak at its prow and the surface seemed buried or, or, or rippled or fluted. On its upper surface was a dome or, or, or cupola from which I seemed to see reflected flashes as the sib struck something, which might or might not have been a helmet worn by something inside. I don't know. The other end of the airfoil thinned out into a sort of fin. Every now and again, there came from its keel greenish-blue flashes. It turned at a small angle towards us, and I was amazed to see, framed in a white circle on the front of the dome, an image of a large, grinning Cheshire cat. Bloody hell! The damn thing flew parallel to us for some minutes, and then it abruptly turned away, and as it did so... It showed, it showed flower things like 
fins on its belly side. I, I'm sorry, uh, uh, sorry to interrupt there, old man, but uh, I was the one who wrote this report, and there are a few more typos in this one. It's, it showed four things like fins, and, and the sib didn't strike anything. The sun did. Uh, my bad. So sorry. All right, mate. Well, let me get on with it then. It, it turned and dived into straight down into the Pacific and went under, throwing up a regular whirlpool of waves, just as if it had been a submarine. No. The Japanese had nothing in the amphibious line like that sort of mysterious bird. This thing sounds like something out wow. of a, like, Hayao Miyazaki film. Like, a, a airship with a cat's face painted on it? Like, what the yes. fuck that goes underwater? What the fuck is this? That's crazy. That also reminds me of the latest uh, Tic Tac encounter off the Nimitz where uh, Commander David Fravor saw it fly under the water, you know? Yes. Uh, very, God, but wild, instead strange. of a Tic Tac shaped craft, we're talking about like something that is out of Harry Potter. It's very, yeah. very weird. Weird. Another close encounter occurred in the summer of 1942. Flight Lieutenant Roman Sabinski, a Polish member of the RAF 301 Bomber Squadron, was finishing a run over Germany's Ruhr Valley. They were flying over Holland when a bright orb, about twice the size of the moon in the sky, intercepted Sabinski's bomber. The crew fired upon the strange light, and much to their surprise, the orb simply absorbed the gunfire from the bomber. According to author Keith Chester, quote, the bullets were neither falling to the ground, nor were they passing through the object. They just simply entered the light and disappeared, end quote. Weird. During the two-minute encounter, Sabinski's crew was baffled by the light's behavior. And Sabinski said this that I'm pulling up in the book right now. I moved over to my seat in the cockpit and I took the controls myself. I did an evasive action because I was quite concerned with this object, which I did not know of what, it, what it was. And while I was doing quite violent maneuvers, moving the wings up and down, uh, this object stayed exactly at the extension of the wing, which means you could have, you would have to, at that distance, it would develop tremendous speed to catch up and keep formation with my aircraft. Finally, the ball of light sped up to the nose of the plane where it flew for a few moments before rocketing, rocketing off into the sky at a 45-degree angle and vanishing between the stars. Curiously, it wasn't until near the end of World War II that the strange aerial phenomena plaguing these pilots got its name. The genesis of the term Foo Fighter occurred during the late fall and winter months of 1944 and 1945 when the 415th Night Fighter Squadron had repeated encounters with strange fireballs while flying missions across the Rhine Valley along the French-German border. In mid-December 1944, the 415th Night Fighters had begun to witness strange lights on almost a nightly basis. For example, on December 17th, a 415th pilot was flying a night mission over Brisek, Germany, when he witnessed five or six flashing lights in a T-shape, which he originally mistook for flak, but observed hovering in place for several minutes before simply vanishing. Pilots in the 415th traded many stories like these. Everyone was baffled and amazed by the behavior of these weird lights. And encountering these objects during a mission, often right before or even during a battle, could be extremely frightening. 
one of the pilots and operations officers by the name of Charlie Horn gave them the name Foo Fighters after his favorite comic strip, Smokey Stover, which featured a comical firefighter who drove a truck called the Foo Mobile. One of the catchphrases in the strip was, where there's foo, there's fire. Horn thought up the name and thought it was a fittingly ironic response to the absurdity of witnessing an unexplainable phenomenon that attracted skepticism and derision. I thought it was, uh, shall we say, it was foo. It was, it was foolish to even think something like that, but it was kind of a phenomenon characteristic thing. You know, you just, you didn't expect the 415th had their hands full with nightly encounters with the Foo Fighters, coming in the forms of inexplicable fireballs zipping around the skies and rows of mysterious white lights showing off for the pilots. One night during a mission, Lieutenant Samuel A. Krasny and pilot L. Chester L. Busio flew through a thick fog when a strange red light pulled up parallel to their bow fighter. The crew watched the aircraft-sized object fly just off their wingtip. Through the eerie red glow of the fog, Krasny caught a glimpse of a wingless, cigar-shaped craft. Busio performed evasive moves, but the object chased them in a cat-and-mouse game in the sky, performing unimaginable maneuvers before finally flying off into the darkness. On December 26, Pilot Lieutenant Floyd Lott and Radar Operator Lieutenant Anderson Henshaw were flying a mission over Worms, Germany. Already nervous about being shot out of the skies by German forces below, they were alarmed when a fiery ball suddenly came out of nowhere and began trailing the tail of the plane. Henshaw barked at Floyd to pull a hard right. We made a maneuver, which was a hard right, and came around to where we would have tried to come around to and be on the rear of this, whatever it was, thinking it was some kind of aircraft. But uh, when we made the maneuver and came around... We were in the same position that we were in originally, with the fireball still st still to our rear. So this situation huh, kind of shook us up. So we got out of the vicinity. But not before Henshaw managed to get a closer look at the object following them. It was composed of three vivid, circular reddish-blue lights that looked like flames, arranged in a triangular formation. Henshaw described them as, quote, triangle a triangle of ovals the ovals being like the quote exhaust of an aircraft radial engine or the size of the balls on top of a barber's pole the kind outside their shop end quote although the interactions between the 415th and foo fighters became big news in january of 1945 Many of these encounters across the Allied forces went unreported to U.S. command during the war, or when they were reported, they were mocked. When they were, take, when they were taken seriously, suspicion pointed towards Hitler having some kind of new secret weapon, like the V-2 rocket, for example. Now, Germany had been testing with a lot of secret weapons during the war, obviously. Check out BCC 120, The Nazi Bell with John Gabers for more information. But scientists at the time thought it was unlikely that Foo Fighters were some type of radio-controlled countermeasure to distract or disorient pilots. The altitude, speed, and proximity to aircraft these mysterious balls of light achieved were too advanced for ground-to-sky radio control. They offered their own explanations, which varied from some type of mysterious magnetic force-guided targeting indicators, St. Elmo's fire, ball lightning, 
And all much to the chagrin of the pilots fighting the war who felt like none of these explanations fully categorized the characteristics of what they were witnessing, a phenomenon that they felt was controlled by intelligent forces and ultimately non-hostile. In early 1945, G-men from Washington arrived at the 415th Air Base in hopes to catch a glimpse of the Foo Fighters for themselves, although their official business and purpose for being there was never really explained. Try as they might, the government never caught a glimpse of the actual Foo Fighters, and any attempt to explain the phenomena came up shorthanded. The 415th, it seemed, was just going to have to adjust and prepare for unexplainable encounters in the night skies. Here's a quote from their training and tactical info from December of 1945. We have encountered a phenomenon which we cannot explain. Crews have been followed by lights that blink on and off, changing colors, etc. The lights come very close and fly formation with our planes. They are agitating and keep the crews on edge when they encounter them, mainly because they cannot explain them. What exactly were these Foo Fighters? For this intrepid armchair ufologist, they are obviously the mid-1940s version of UFOs and are probably related to the phenomena currently discussed in the headlines of 2020 and in documentaries like Showtime's recent UFO. In other words, Foo Fighters is just another term for the same shit people have been seeing in the skies for centuries. I think it's possible they were interested in what was happening during World War II and because we had so many pilots and planes in the air who were always on the lookout for danger or enemy attacks, they got an up-close-and-personal look at these puppies. As the war ended, so too did the frequent interactions with Foo Fighters, leading some to believe that maybe they did have some connection to Hitler. In December of 1945, Joe Chamberlain wrote a story on Foo Fighters for American Legion magazine, concluding the article with this quote. The Foo Fighters simply disappeared when Allied forces captured the uh, area east of the Rhine. This was known to be the location of many German experimental stations. Since VE Day, our intelligence officers have put many such installations under guard. From them, we hope to get valuable research information, including the solution to the Foo Fighter mystery. But it has not appeared yet. It may be successfully hidden for years to come, possibly forever. The members of the 415th hope that Army intelligence will find the answer. If it turns out the Germans never had anything airborne in the area, they say, we'll all be set for Section 8 psychiatric discharges. Meanwhile, the Foo Fighter mystery continues unsolved. The lights or, or balls of fire appeared and disappeared on the other side of the world, over Japan, and your guess as to what they were is just as good as mine, for nobody really knows. And that, in a very brief nutshell, is the story of the Foo Fighters of World War II. Well played, old boy. Nicely done. Well, Jordan, what the hell is that? <laughs> Don't ask me. I'm just like singing Foo Fighter songs in my head now. That's all I can do. That's all that's happening over here. What oh do you God. think? Is this some natural phenomenon? Is this some magic? Is this some occult uh, weaponry from the Nazis? What, or is this just some UFO zipping around, uh, uh, taking a look at what was going on during World War II? 
I did like what you said about that, about how that might have been, you know, attracting some interest. And it also reminds me of the way that um, David Lynch has treated some of these themes in his work Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, kind of the atrocities of man might be um, drawing down and kind of inviting in some of this otherworldly interest. I like that. Yeah, it's funny, man. I mean, they they um I was reading stuff in this book about how like when they were fighting the battle of Bul- of the bulge, like pilots were flying above the like high above where everyone else was fighting and they were like above the battle and then above them were these were these foo fighters coming in. So like they were yeah. happening during battles as well. And they all just agree that whatever it was seemed to be intelligently controlled, seemed to be observing them and ultimately wasn't hostile because they, they, mm-hmm. they would they would chase them and toy with them. But they wouldn't they they wouldn't return fire, um, you know, and they just had no explanation for what was going on wild stuff yeah well what do you think man i i I don't know man i mean anybody's guess is as good as anybody's guess it does remind me a lot of the uh of the sort of encounters that we read about in that new york times article but it sounds like it was happening way more and and much more on a regular basis i'm interested in the fact that that uh, after they took over that um after they defeated that one position that it stopped you know um that's, that's the big interesting... thing is they're like as soon as we won the war and occupied germany it all ended like the foo wow. fighter stuff just ended but you know but we know but... that you know we still see weird orbs of lights and stuff like this so yeah. who who knows but they were like okay if this is a weapon it might be a thing they were they were trying to think like are they trying to fuck with our night vision? Are they just trying to get up there and disorient us and like not, you know, so we don't we don't know our heads from our asses when we're flying around up there, you know? Well, but you know the. Oh, go ahead. I'll let you. I was just going to say, but yeah. it didn't. It wasn't like they did that and then planes were shot down. You know what I mean? Right. But they were also freaked out because when these when these Foo Fighters would come up, they would be giving away the plane's position. You know, because mm-hmm. they're yeah. trying to fly under the cover of darkness, and then you got this fucking red ball circling your plane. They're like, somebody's going to see this and shoot at us. You know, there is an idea that, and and this is a stretch, but hey, I mean, that's what we do on this show, right? Like, so the Nazis were very much into the occult and the supernatural, right? Mm -hmm. Perhaps they had some, like, secretive occult group that was, like, summoning or trying to get into the minds of the American pilots and, like, trying to distract them and, like, creating some sort of you know, some sort of tulpa magic or, or, or summoning some type of who knows, you know what I mean? And then, and then once they defeated that position, that, that group was broken up and perhaps it stopped. I mean, I, I don't know. That's a, just a completely out on let the left field guess, but yeah, but uh, I don't know. I don't know, man. I like the idea that, Hey, if there's, you know, intelligently controlled phenomena that, you know, inhabit the skies, they'd certainly be interested in, in aerial warfare taking place, you know, in, in yeah, World a War global II. war taking place. Mm-hmm. You're like, yeah. wait a minute, these chimpanzees are building a nuke. <laughs> right. Uh-oh. Right. <clears throat> Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Jordan, any final thoughts on the paranormal as we wrap up another episode of Bigfoot Collectors Club? 
Oh my gosh. No, I'm just excited that we are having these conversations more and more and more and that we are um, just demystifying and honestly, just creating more like non-judgmental space for these kinds of conversations. I think it's really fun and really healing and really helpful. So Awesome. Well, well, well said. said. I know I Indeed. and all of our listeners are going to be looking forward to your podcast. It sounds Aww. like it's right up all of our alleys. So awesome. good luck with that. We cannot wait to uh, to listen. Yes, thank Jordan. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, you know, we don't know where to find the Foo Fighters, but where can our listeners find <laughs> you in your podcast? <laughs> well, okay. So it is Psyche Magic Podcast. Um, the website is just www.psychemagicpodcast.com. Um, Instagram is psyche underscore magic. And right now it is on Spotify. It's going to be like slowly rolled out to the other platforms via Anchor, but it is definitely on Spotify as of now. So just search right. up, search up psyche magic. Awesome. I know our listeners will definitely want to check that out. So thank you. Thank you, Jordan, for being on the show. Uh, guys, tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, WASP 2 live finale on Ludo. The link again is live.ludo2use.gg slash backslash BCC. You can get tickets still. You can get tickets right up right up to the beginning of the show. So uh, get those tickets, get those five-star reviews in so we can announce the BCC Jet Ski special tonight. We'll see you then. Boys, love you, boys. Jordan, yeah. thank you again. Thank mm. you so much. Until next week or until tonight, good night. And go get regressed. Bigfoot Collectors Club is produced by Riley Bray. Our theme song is Come Alone by Sun Eaters, courtesy of Lotus Pool Records. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the podcast to more listeners. To support the show, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash Bigfoot Collectors Club and unlock multiple reward episodes every month. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Each episode, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, talking with filmmakers, novelists, game designers, cosplayers, comic book artists, and anyone who works in the field of make-believe. I also look at the fan experience, asking, why do we suspend our disbelief? You can subscribe to Imaginary Worlds wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their case has had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. 
Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday.